So our text this morning is verses 22 and 23 of Matthew chapter 17. Of all the things that the disciples of Jesus have heard him say and seen him do, there is something approaching that's going to put all of those things in the shade. The glory of the things that Peter and James and John had seen at the top of the mountain at the beginning of this chapter, they contained no hint really of the horrors that they would shortly witness. The sense of frustration and disappointment that they'd known as they were unable to help that boy possessed of a demon that they could not cast out. That frustration and disappointment would be a drop in the ocean compared to how they would feel in Jerusalem not too long from now. So we're not surprised, I hope, to discover that rather than leave them completely in the dark about where his life and ministry is ultimately leading and how it would actually end, Jesus demonstrates real compassion and care for his disciples by starting to prepare them for what lies in store. It's difficult to know just how much of it and what extent of it the disciples truly grasped and understood at this point. But Jesus is kind and he begins to prepare them nonetheless. And as far as Matthew's Gospel is concerned, the start of that process really began in the previous 16th chapter, where at verse 21, Jesus said this to them. Uh, what the, sorry, this is what we're told that Matthew, by Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And at that point, you'll remember perhaps the response of Peter. He's getting two mentions this morning. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Uh, Peter probably is thinking, I I'll, I'll defend Jesus to the hilt so that this can't happen. And you remember how Jesus replied to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Ooh, that's strong. You are an offence to me. Now listen to this. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. It's very easy to get yourself caught up in the things of men, whilst the things of God take a back seat. Even as a Christian, it's easy for that to happen. You take far too much notice of what unconverted men and women are saying and doing. Being far too mindful of the thoughts and opinions of unconverted men. And give no thought as to how a believer with an open Bible ought to be responding and behaving. And let's face it, in the thoughts and plans and schemes of men, 
no one would have come up with the storyline that's about to unfold in the gospel message. No one would envisage that this Jesus, with all of the power and authority that he has displayed in all of these miracles that he's done, no one would envisage him being taken captive by men and seemingly overpowered and destroyed and brought to nothing. How easy it is to only think the thoughts of men, to only be mindful of men, of man's wisdom, of the things that we hear men say, the things that we see men do, and to forget, to forget that far above all earthly things, far above all earthly things, sits one in heaven who is the Lord of all and he does whatever he pleases and one whose ways and thoughts are so far beyond yours and mine it's like we haven't even started to do or think anything compared to him and in these verses, Jesus chooses to speak again to his disciples about his final days. And their great sorrow that we're told about at the end of verse 23 shows to us that they are still floundering in their understanding and acceptance of these things. They're struggling to accept that such a thing could happen. And they still yet haven't fully understood why such a thing must happen. Well, may the Lord, by his mercy and grace, deliver all of us from that kind of blindness. And that we might see Christ as he reveals himself here in these verses. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're going to be taking a break from our study in Matthew during the month of December. But there's probably no better place for us to pause as we enter this annual season of remembering the events surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus, where better to stop in Matthew's Gospel than these two verses in chapter 17? For this is the whole purpose of his coming. Have you understood? Will you understand? And there are three basic points to Christ's statement. Number one is this. Jesus will submit himself to sinful men. Jesus knows at this point all that is to happen to him. And far from doing anything to try and prevent it, he is going to make, he's going to take himself to Jerusalem and submit himself to it. When he's finally arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, that arrest would take place after he'd spent several hours agonizing over what lay before him. And he would, he would plead with his father that if there was any possibility of finding some other way some other way that the elect of God might be redeemed, that perhaps such an alternative could be found. 
But then, of course, as he concludes his praying, he makes it clear that he knew there was no other way. Hence, the dreadful agonies in his soul. And, of course, he concludes by humbling himself to the will of his Father. The events of what we now know as Good Friday, they will not catch him out. They will not take him unawares. They won't be a surprise and unexpected twist in the storyline that no one saw coming. No, Jesus knew every detail of what was to unfold. And it will begin with him being betrayed. Or you might have a, a Bible version that uses the word delivered instead. Betrayed, delivered into the hands of men. It would appear as if it's all they're doing. And for the most part, that's how Jesus will permit it to play out. But we can see from these verses, all these months before that happened, that the reality is far different. Jesus will betray him into the hands of the Jewish leaders. Uh, Judas will betray him into the hands of the Jewish leaders. They will deliver him into the hands of the Roman officials. They will deliver him into the hands of their soldiers in their Jerusalem barracks where he would be viciously assaulted and insulted. And they will deliver him into the hands of their execution squad. He will be delivered into the hands of men. And as you go through those various events, the Lord of glory goes down, 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 as he submits himself into their hands. His humiliation is total. And he did it willingly for sinners like you and me. And he's telling his disciples that all of these things, number one, are absolutely necessary. And number two, are absolutely certain. This is going to happen. When you read through the Psalms, you'll frequently read, in the Psalms of David especially, you find David often asking God to protect and deliver him from the hands of wicked men. And God does again and again. And yet here with Jesus, no such thoughts are to be found. There's just that one request in Gethsemane that, is there some other way? But Jesus knows he must be delivered into the hands of wicked men. And they will bring about the very thing for which he came into the world. This causes us to see we must be very careful how we view and assess all of the sinfulness that we see in the world. It is still sin. It is still great wickedness. Those who commit such wickedness, are guilty of such wickedness, they do bring themselves under the judgment and the condemnation and the wrath of God. 
it will often appear as if it's all their own doing. You and I will often be tempted to think, God cannot possibly have any part in this. And yet, as surely as God was using the deeds of these evil men 2,000 years ago, just as he used pagan kings and nations to bring his judgment upon Old Testament Israel, even today, God will use the deeds of evil men to bring about his will and purposes. This is a spiritual reality that you and I must not lose sight of. God is over all things. God uses all things. If Jesus had fought against this wickedness in these men, if Jesus had refused to submit to the wicked deeds of these men, you and I would still be heading for a lost and awful eternity. And this is one of the reasons why men like the Apostle Paul could rejoice and be thankful even over the terrible things that he endured at the hands of wicked men for the cause of the gospel, rather than be filled with venom and hatred towards them. We need much wisdom and grace and discernment in these areas, that's very true. But we must be very careful how we view and assess the deeds of wicked men in this world. And we must always keep in view how Christ humbled himself and gave himself over to such humiliation and himself taught of the persecution which is certain to come our way if we follow him. But it will all be for his ultimate glory, all of it. Jesus knows that the, the greatest testing, the greatest trial of faith that his disciples are going to go through would come at the end of his earthly ministry, in his suffering and in his death and in his burial. He knows that they are going to be plunged into complete despair. And so, so much of what he's going to do from this point on, in addition to being designed to equip them for their future gospel ministry, it's also designed to ensure that they will be able to endure this trial that they are going to go through as Jesus does die. And it's a really precious thing, surely, to see that at a time when we might think Jesus will be perfectly justified to concentrate on preparing himself for this awful thing that's coming his way. He turns his, he turns his attention to ministering to his disciples. The trial that they will endure is not half as great as the trial that he will endure. But yet his heart turns to them and he's filled with compassion and care and concern for them. That's Christ through and through. 
they needed to be faced with the stark realities of what it meant to follow Christ all the way to Calvary. And so he continues over and over to prepare them. I mentioned earlier that where we have the word betrayed in our New King James Version, other translations prefer the word delivered, delivered into the hands of men. Now actually, both words are acceptable, both words are accurate, although perhaps the word delivered is the more helpful word of the two. The word betrayed, well maybe that, that tends to throw the focus onto the part played by Judas Iscariot, but the word delivered, well, the word delivered begs a question, doesn't it? If Jesus is delivered into the hands of men, who is it who does the delivering? Uh, most weeks in our home, uh, we have quite a lot of parcels being delivered to our house. A certain person in our home has a love of buying lots of clothes and shoes online from companies who provide, pre who provide free postage so you can send back what you don't want to keep. I'm on first name terms with the courier who arrives at our door to pick up all the stuff that's not needed. And they're being returned. But we get deliveries to our house. So do you. Who's behind the delivery? Yes, they arrive by the post or the courier. But the reason the courier has them in their van is because someone else originated their delivery. They were sent. They don't just turn up from nowhere. They're delivered because someone has sent them. Why does Jesus phrase it like this? delivered into the hands of men. Not captured by the hands of men. Delivered into the hands of men. Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 at verse 32 says this, He, that's God the Father, who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. And then we read from Acts chapter 2 where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And do you remember one of the things that Peter said in that sermon? Of course, his audience that day were predominantly Jews because they were all in Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. Men of Israel, he said, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered. And how does Peter go on to describe that delivery? Being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Being delivered you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Those lawless hands would never have been able to get hold of Christ were it not for the fact that God has delivered him to them 
and Jesus willingly came and submitted to the will of his Father. Matthew wants us to see not only the necessity of Jesus' suffering and the certainty of Jesus' suffering, he wants you to see that his suffering was the very plan of God for your sake. And the evil deeds of these wicked men was all part of how God would bring about your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a tragedy. It was the Father's plan to redeem sinners from their sins. That plan required this humiliation of his own son in order that he could pay in full the debt that you owe in your sin. That he would pay in full by receiving in his own body what you deserve because of your sin. He must be delivered into the hands of men. And that humiliation was taken up willingly by Christ for you. That, humili that humiliation was not endured by Jesus because he deserved it. He endured it because it was what you deserve. But he took it in your place. Once Christmas is here, don't allow yourself to get so caught up in all of the festive cheer that you lose all sight of the reason why Jesus came into this world. He came to suffer the greatest humiliation that any man has ever suffered. The greatest humiliation that any man has ever endured at the hands of men. This is the eternal God, the Lord of glory, giving of himself as a ransom for sin. He must be delivered into the hands of men. Secondly, Jesus must be killed. And it would be a death of exceeding pain and anguish and humiliation. They stripped you naked when they crucified you, you know. For most of his life, Jesus has known and understood that the purpose of his coming was to die for his people. He came into this world in order that he could, he could do what he could not do if he'd remained in heaven with his Father. The Bible teaches us that God is spirit. How do you crucify one who is a spirit? How do men lay their hands on one who, who is a spirit? So Jesus took on human flesh in order that those things could happen. He who is infinite and eternal stepped into time. He submitted himself to the limitations of human existence in a real body of flesh and blood. And he did that in order that he might suffer at the hands of these wicked men. And that at their hands he might be put to death. 
but not before he had lived a sinless life in order that you might have his righteousness. His being without sin as a man and his still remaining the eternal and infinite God is what qualified him as the one man who is able to stand in the place of sinners. The one man who is able to be the sinner's substitute. The one man who is able to atone for the sins of others as a perfect and acceptable sacrifice to God. Nothing less than the blood atonement of Jesus Christ was necessary to satisfy the wrath and the justice of God. We've talked quite a lot about the compassion of Jesus in recent weeks in this series in Matthew. But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, his compassion for sinners is going to be taken to a whole other level when you see what he's prepared to endure for you and for me. Would you not see the Saviour's love in this? What else would make him do it? Would you see that Jesus knew perfectly what he had been born into the world to do and yet he willingly chose to do it for you? Can you not see the love of Christ in all of this? Do you realize that his knowledge all his life was that he was born to die for sinners? That this is why he came? I must give my life a ransom for sin. Can you imagine living your life knowing that your job was at the, end, at the age of 33, you would die such a horrendous death for all of your people? And more than that, to lose the experience of God's presence with him. And he chose that for all who would come to him. What love there is in Christ. Would you not turn to him today if you never have before? Would you turn your back on such a saviour as this? How much love this saviour, Jesus, must have for lost, sinful men and women as he speaks to his disciples about what lies in store in a few months' time. God the Father delivered him to this in order that you might be saved so that you might become his child that you might know his love that love that the Father and the Son have for one another that, that you might be drawn into that love for this the Father sent his Son and delivered him into the hands of these men John Owen was possibly the foremost theologian of the Puritan era and certainly one of England's greatest ever theologians. And because of that, many say that they find him hard to read. So deep and rich are the insights that he gives. And yet, he also said this, and I challenge anyone to tell me that you cannot understand this, 
There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. Because of Christ's death, death has died for God's people. And all because, and only because, Jesus was delivered into the hands of men in order that he might be killed. He must be killed. Jesus died for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ this morning? And finally, Jesus' third point for his disciples that day, Jesus will rise again. I will be raised, he told his disciples. And he was on the third day. In that glorious 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, having begun the chapter with a very simple summary of what the gospel is, he carries on then to draw our attention to the fact that Christ's resurrection is absolutely undisputed and explains that the resurrection of Christ is as much a part of the gospel as his death. And it's as much necessary as his death. Christ's death was not only to pay the penalty for sin, although it was that. Christ also was to defeat sin forever. And the demonstration of that was that he rose again the third day. The grave could not hold him. And for the Christian who believes and trusts in Christ, it isn't only an issue of being saved from wrath and condemnation, although it is wonderfully that, but it's also about being born again and made new in Christ. And we are raised to newness of life because he has been raised And he's been raised in the power of an endless life. And we have our new life in him who now lives. He is our risen, ever-living Lord and Saviour. We don't have our new life in one who lies rotting in a grave. We have our new life in the one who himself is risen. As we sing in one of our hymns, the gospel of Christ is about sins forgiven and conscience cleansed. But it's also about death defeated and life without end because he is risen. And having risen, he also, 40 days later, ascended back into heaven. And he he did that so that he could be at the Father's right hand. Christ now is exalted to his rightful place of glory and honour. He's receiving in heaven the praises that are due his name because he is risen. From there, even now, he intercedes for all of his people. The man who is God in heaven 
in heaven now he still is the God-man, the only mediator between a holy God and sinful men and women because he is risen. He is there right now preparing for us a place for all of eternity because he is risen. From there, one day he will return and take us to be with himself in that place that is prepared because he is risen. Paul makes it clear that to wonder if Christ really did rise from the dead, that is as big an issue as it would be to wonder if he died for sinners. We need the power of the risen Christ. We need the hope of a risen Christ. Now it seems that for the disciples, the first two points that Jesus has raised, they're starting to become clear. But they're still struggling with this third point. Hence their great sorrow. They can't yet get any further than seeing Jesus killed. Their love for Christ is real. It's still taking some time for the blindness to be lifted from their hearts and minds. It's important to remember this. We're told in Hebrews 12 that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. Now the joy set before him certainly wasn't the cross. So what was the joy set before him? Well, it's because Jesus could see beyond the cross. Jesus could see beyond the grave. And Jesus was filled with joy at the sight of all those ransomed souls, pardoned, forgiven, who would be with him in glory forever. That's the joy that Jesus saw. And how, how did he know that that was the joy that he would have? Because he knew he would rise again the third day. The disciples aren't quite there yet with these truths. I wonder if you are this morning. And you and I, we will know much grief and sorrow in this life. You know only too well being a Christian hasn't made you immune to all of the trials and afflictions and struggles of life. But here's a question. How may sorrow be turned into joy? Now that's a question the world would like to know the answer to. How can sorrow be turned into joy? How can you have a joy deep-rooted that even in the midst of grief cannot be quenched, cannot be put out. How can sorrow be turned into joy? It's a good question. Here's the answer. The Lord Jesus died for our sins and was raised the third day. That's how. Death is defeated. Life everlasting is promised. Eternal hope lies beyond the grave.
being united with loved ones in the presence of Christ, all tears and crying will cease. Sorrow and mourning will flee away because he is risen. The troubles of this life, the opposition and the persecution that might come your way, they are but a light affliction because of the weight of the glory which is yet to come. Because he is risen. It's your business to know of the resurrection. But more than that, it's your business to know the one who was raised. Do you know him? It's your, it's your business to believe and embrace the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than that, to believe and embrace him. So that you may be raised to new and everlasting life in him. Do you have that hope? This is the certain hope of the Christian faith. The risen Christ is the certain hope of our faith. It's the bedrock, the very, fa the very foundation of your hope for future glory, that he who died is risen. Now we heard just this last week of a mother with three teenage children whose life in the blink of an eye was hanging by a thread. Seemingly from nowhere, illness struck her down. What it is, if Christ takes you there to have the knowledge and hope and security of the risen Lord Jesus. What it is to be at the bedside of someone who's in that position, but you and they have the knowledge and hope and security of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you, like me, have been there. What a difference it makes. Oh, to trust in Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, to be assured of all the benefits and blessings of trusting in Christ because of his humiliation for you, because of his death for you, and because you, with him, have been raised to newness of life and life everlasting. This Christian faith in which we stand is such an amazing, glorious thing. The day will come when your poor earthly flesh and mine will be raised and miraculously reconstituted from the grave. You and I, we will have bodies just like Christ's resurrected body. We will live eternally with God and all of his children, singing his praises. Because he who died is risen. There's nothing like it. Well, may God grant to you grace and mercy that you may believe on this Lord Jesus, that all your trust is fixed on him, that all your hope is found in him, 
because he who died is risen.